I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. My guest today is Lindsay Clark, a geriatric neuropsychologist and Alzheimer's disease researcher at the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Clark assesses, treats, and counsels patients with memory concerns, cognitive changes, and other neurological conditions at the UW Geriatric Memory Assessment and Follow-Up Clinics, as well as the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison. One of Dr. Clark's research interests is developing strategies for safe disclosure of Alzheimer's disease biomarker information. Today, we are going to discuss a new amyloid disclosure study she recently launched with a select number of participants in the Wisconsin Registry for Alzheimer's Prevention, or RAP, study. Welcome back to the podcast, Lindsay. Hi, thanks for having me today. I want you to start out by explaining amyloid accumulation and what the science community knows about its relationship to Alzheimer's disease. Amyloid is a protein that is a part of beta amyloid plaques, which is one of the two pathologies involved in Alzheimer's disease. So people with Alzheimer's disease in their brain, they develop beta amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles. And beta amyloid plaques are something that develops in the brain that basically interferes with the ability of the brain cells to communicate with one another. And so what we know as a field is that these plaques start developing very early in the disease. And they're probably one of the earliest brain changes that happen in Alzheimer's disease. And we know that these start developing about 10 to 20 years before a person develops symptoms that are significant enough to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease dementia. Okay, so just to clarify then, so Alzheimer's disease is broken down into having two abnormal proteins. One you said was amyloid or beta amyloid, and then the other is uh, neurofibrillary tangles or a tau protein. Is that right? That's correct. And so then the amyloid itself is one of the first things that occur in this process of building up to Alzheimer's disease. Uh, But amyloid actually forms what you said was plaque. So there's little amyloid proteins that come together and form a bigger plaque. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, this beta amyloid protein, for some reason, it sort of goes bad in the brains of Alzheimer's disease patients. And, you know, they kind of get sticky and clump together and and turn into these larger plaques that interfere with brain function. And these plaques then can interfere with the processing and regular function of the brain. That's right. Okay. And so then this amyloid is what people like you, researchers in science, are identifying and measuring in living people. That's right. And so how are you doing that? Yeah. So there's a couple of different techniques that we use to measure amyloid in vivo or in living people's brains. One is using a special type of imaging, brain imaging technique called positron emission tomography or PET scans. And in this method, we inject a tracer, the bloodstream of patients or participants, and this tracer is specially designed to bind with beta amyloid protein in the brain. So then we can see exactly where 
and how much beta amyloid protein is in a person's brain. So it helps us to better quantify, you know, if a person has beta amyloid plaques in their brain, and if so, you know, where and how much. And then the other technique that's used to measure amyloid is by doing a lumbar puncture and extracting cerebral spinal fluid out of the spinal cord. So cerebral spinal fluid is basically the fluid that surrounds the brain, helps kind of keep the brain protected within the skull. And by extract, doing a lumbar puncture to extract that fluid, we can see a little bit more about what proteins are actually happening or, you know, actually present in the brain. So um, that's another technique that's used to see if there's abnormally low levels of amyloid protein in the cerebrospinal fluid, which would suggest that it's actually being kind of stuck within the brain. So normally the brain kind of flushes out this amyloid protein, but if the protein's getting stuck in these plaques, then it doesn't flush it out as efficiently. And so we see lower levels of this protein in the cerebrospinal fluid. And we can also look for other proteins like the tau protein that's involved in neurofibrillary tangles using that technique as well. And so prior to being able to do spinal fluid analysis in the PET scans, we relied on autopsies, pathologists looking at people who just died and and looking for these proteins. Is that right? Yeah, it's um, only recently, you know, in the last decade or so that we've been able to see um, some of these protein changes uh, in living people. It used to be that we had to wait until people passed away and then look in the tissue after death to uh, determine whether amyloid or tau is present. Okay, well, and so are these newer techniques like the PET scan and the spinal fluid, are, are these reliable? They are. Yeah, they've been studied, you know, across many labs and the techniques have been refined and kind of validated in many different ways. And so they are they are reliable measures of amyloid and tau proteins in the brain. And so knowing that then, you know, and in your time in clinic, do patients ever learn about the results of these types of scans? You know, that's a good question. These aren't typically techniques that we are using in the clinical setting. So usually in the clinic, people might have other tests like MRI scans to look at just overall brain structure. These aren't typically used as much in a clinical setting. And part of that is related to insurance uh, doesn't cover um, most of these techniques. For example, amyloid PET scans. Some clinics will order CSF results, but this is not very common. I think there's kind of similar issues in terms of insurance coverage. So it's just not something that's used as much in a clinical setting at this point. Now, there are studies being conducted by Medicare and Medicaid services to determine clinical utility of amyloid PET scans and whether they would want to potentially cover them in the future. So it's possible this might change. And then jumping from the clinic into the research world, uh, do research participants learn about the results of their amyloid PET scan or their CSF findings? Typically, if it's being done in an observational study, the research participants are not informed of these results. In clinical trial settings, there are times where 
it's a part of the study to inform participants of their results. So for example, in studies in which participants have to be um, elevate, have to have elevated amyloid in the brain in order to participate in the clinical trial because it's an anti-amyloid therapy. In those studies, participants are informed of the results because if they're not elevated, then they're usually not enrolled in the clinical trial. And so they have to be told those results. In observational studies uh, in the past, participants have typically not been informed of any research results unless they're, you know, clinically relevant. So, uh, you know, if a brain tumor is found on an MRI scan or something that can be intervened on is found on their labs, for example. In Alzheimer's disease research studies, who is the target population for using amyloid scans and studying them? So often the target population is individuals who are at higher risk for Alzheimer's disease. So people who are maybe in their 50s or 60s who have a family history of Alzheimer's disease, for example, many of the studies using these biomarkers are looking to see if we can um, identify markers of the disease in the preclinical stage, so prior to symptom onset. So typically, um, these scans are being done in in that population, although there are also studies using them in individuals who have diagnoses of dementia or mild cognitive impairment as well. And in your study, you're disclosing to participants the results of their amyloid scans. And so what population are you doing? And then why does this require such careful consideration in an entire study about the strategy of disclosing this information? So for our study, we'll be disclosing amyloid PET scan results to cognitively healthy older adults who are enrolled in our longitudinal research study, specifically the Wisconsin Registry for Alzheimer's Prevention. The reason that it requires careful consideration is because we want to make sure that we're balancing the risks and benefits of disclosing these results. So what I mean by that is we want to make sure that when we share this information, uh, we're doing it in a way that is not just anxiety provoking, distressing, you know, very worrying for people, but, you know, is also providing some sort of benefit to them in, in learning this information. One of the things we want to do to make sure that we are being, you know, careful is by providing a lot of education about what these results mean. So the first part of the study is really, um, you know, doing good informed consent and providing an education session about, you know, what is beta amyloid? What, um, you know, are we measuring with these PET scans? And what do these results look like? Because one thing that is tricky is that we don't know, you know, on an individual level, exactly what these results will mean for people. For example, we know that if someone has uh, elevated levels of amyloid plaque markers in their brain, so elevated amyloid PET scan results, they are at higher risk for dementia due to Alzheimer's disease. But we don't know for sure, you know, exactly, you know, will they definitely develop dementia and when they'll develop it. So it, there are some, you know, some challenges in terms of sharing that information with people and making sure that that's understood and clear. And what do you hypothesize are really the critical components 
to a good disclosure, knowing that the results from your study will impact other studies as well as potentially clinical care in the future? Yeah, I think there are a couple of really critical components to doing good disclosure. One I just briefly talked about, which is education and informed consent. So making sure that people understand what these results mean. Um, you know, they mean that they're at higher risk for Alzheimer's disease if the result is elevated. Um, but, you know, doesn't mean that they're definitely going to develop dementia in the future. Um, so we want to make sure people understand that um, kind of gray area about these results and are still wanting this information. So doing good informed consent and, and education around that is really important. And then, you know, having someone who is educated or, you know, knowledgeable in this area doing the disclosure. So um, we want someone who is, you know, kind of an expert in Alzheimer's disease and, you know, a good clinician being able to disclose the results so that when people do have questions, you know, those questions are able to be answered and, and they can have a discussion about it. It's also another critical component is, um, you know, monitoring for increases in depression or anxiety, which can sometimes happen for a kind of a short period of time following the disclosure of this result. And we want to make sure that we monitor that and provide support as needed. And then another potential critical component is, you know, helping people to like understand what other risk factors they might have for dementia. If they want to know those that might be more modifiable factors such as hypertension, physical inactivity, depression, stress, sleep, you know, those kinds of other factors, um, you know, maybe providing some insight on, you know, what people can do to reduce other risk factors for dementia. So, you know, kind of overall, I think education and, you know, monitoring for psychological symptoms and providing adequate support and knowledge, I think, is, is critical. Yeah, in essence, you're providing care at the end of it. You're letting people know their information and then providing care information for them afterward. What I didn't hear from you is disclosure of actual numbers or risk calculations. So are you disclosing that? And if not, uh, why not? So for our study, we're just disclosing a result that indicates whether a person is elevated or not elevated on their amyloid PET scan. And the reason for that is we feel that we understand what those results mean. We can clearly determine if someone is elevated in their on their amyloid PET scan, and we do know that that's associated with an increased risk for cognitive decline in dementia. It gets a little harder when we try to quantify exact numbers. We are working on studies to do that, to better delineate exactly, you know, uh, how much, for example, amyloid plaque we see in the brain or, you know, the distribution of that plaque um, and what that might mean for a person's future. So we are doing those studies in the lab, but we don't have a good enough sense 
of exactly what those results mean in order to share that or disclose that with with participants because we're still kind of forming those calculations and developing those numbers. But that might be something, you know, that and then a risk calculator in terms of kind of bringing together all of a person's risk factors. Those are things that we're hoping to develop in the lab and could potentially be something that's disclosed in the future. And I think that's important for us to know in the clinics as well as in the community that it takes a lot of time and studies in order to come to those numbers and those risk calculations. And you can't just do it haphazardly. Otherwise, potentially there's harm that people could experience with that. Uh, and so I think I appreciate that you're, you're doing it in a very methodical and, and careful way. Um, even if it is slow, um, we know that you're working on it. And so I'm, I'm glad you're able to share that. I, I wanted to end our interview today uh, with just a thought and a question. You know, there are other biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease that researchers are exploring. So these are things like you mentioned, tau, or just neurodegeneration, brain uh, cell death, or something that's been quite popular in the news lately, blood-based biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease. You know, why does your study focus on amyloid disclosure instead of one of these other biomarkers? It's a good question. Um, Our study focuses on disclosure of amyloid PET scan results because this technique has been around the longest. So we have had amyloid PET scans since the mid 2000s. And these, I think, are the most reliable, have the most potential clinical utility. And we have, you know, kind of the most understanding of what these results mean for people's risk for Alzheimer's dementia. So that's why we are focusing on amyloid PET scan results. The work that we do in developing procedures for disclosing amyloid PET scan results, I think can be translated to other biomarkers, because it's very similar. You're disclosing information about someone's, you know, changes in someone's brain and how they inform a person's risk for Alzheimer's disease. So that, I think, those kind of practical guidelines that we develop and procedures we develop, we can, I think, easily translate to blood-based biomarker disclosure or, you know, tau PET scan disclosure if that were to happen in the future. Um, But amyloid PET scans are just kind of the, we, I feel like we have the best understanding of what those results mean and have the most confidence in them. So those are where we're starting at this point. But certainly there's a lot of other biomarkers that are being developed and uh, we'll have hopefully a better understanding of those future as well. And do you believe you'll be able to translate the key concepts from your study with disclosure in general to these other studies? I do. Yeah, I think our understanding of how, you know, to provide good education, to do good informed consent with people, um, you know, our understanding on how sharing this information impacts people's personal lives, you know, do people feel you know, more motivated to engage in brain healthy behaviors, for example? Do people go out and do more long-term care planning activities? You know, do people or do people feel 
like they have more memory problems? You know, do they notice memory symptoms more or do they feel more anxious about it or more, um, you know, have more stigma, like feel like they can't share this information with people? You know, those kinds of um, more psychosocial outcomes of disclosure that we're really interested in understanding, I do think those will have implications for other biomarker disclosure as well. Well, thank you, Lindsay, for your time today. And I know we will have you back when you have results to discuss and share with us. So thanks again for your time. Thank you. Please subscribe to Dementia Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. And rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode was produced by Rebecca Wazaleski and edited by Bashir Adin. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.